everybody. Welcome to the Sherman Show, the first one post-Labor Day. Today is Thursday, September 7th, 2023, and we have a special guest with us today. Bob, have we ever not had a special guest? I think it's always a special guest. Okay, well, if you didn't notice, I'm Jeff Sherman. I'm here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And Sam, we have a special guest today. Do you want to know who it is? Please. All right. We have none other than Joe Mallon. Joe, he is the chief executive officer at Modelist. I wonder what they do over at Modelist, Sam. Uh, it's a platform committed to constructing personalized model portfolios tailored to the needs of each individual financial advisor and their clients. So, Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. And Joe, I know you in from a former role. So why don't you kind of guide us through the guide path? What made you uh, start your own firm here at Modelist, what your objective is too, and kind of what got you on the path to creating model portfolio solutions for clients? Yeah. So I started in the industry back in the early 2000s, working for a, a large RAA that had you know, a fund of hedge funds, fund of private equity funds, really doing a lot of due diligence on, on those type of products. But Evolved more into a quant role. So I did a quant master's um, at London Business School and then, you know, went from there to work on the quant desk at Columbia Threadneedle and, right. you know, managed a series of large portfolios, a hedge fund, you know, as an analyst on the team, really kind of learning techniques and had a great group of guys that I worked with there. Um, <clears throat> left there and became the CIO of a TAMP platform called Sawtooth, um, recently acquired by a firm called Simplicity. And from that role, I evolved into um, Helios Quantitative Research. So I was there for about seven years up until just a few months ago now. And just recently, like you mentioned, I, I launched a firm called Modelist. And the goal really here is to, you know, kind of carve a new niche in the industry. And I like to describe it as the intersection of the values of direct indexing, model portfolios, and AI. And I hate saying that last one in today's world because I think it's a buzzword thrown around everywhere. But, you know, it is important to what we're trying to build in terms of scale and efficiency internally at the business. So you're not going to you're you're abandoning your plan to launch with blockchain. You're going just directly to AI. Exactly. I did. I did reserve modelist.ai. I'm not using it, but I took it because I thought someday that might be a value. Um, but no, um you know, I'm not trying to have AI as part of the forefront, and I'm sure it's something we'll talk about, but it, it's created so much efficiency in starting a business. It really has, and it's not so much how a lot of people use it in terms of, you know, writing a, a blog or a research report or anything like that. It's more, and I, I haven't gotten into the detail yet, but what we're trying to do at Modelist is provide a lot of investment methods to advisors that they can cobble together and kind of build their own series of model portfolios. And, so, okay. Oh, no, I was just going to say with that, too, maybe before you, you kind of start to describe some of this, maybe you can explain to our listeners and our viewers, you know, some people are watching this on the YouTube. It's youtube.com backslash double line capital. Um, but, you know, uh, some, some of them uh, listen as well. But maybe we can go through and talk about what is a model portfolio? What does it mean to do that? Because... We hear this a lot in the, in the industry. It's, it's, it's a, kind of in the lexicon. But what does it mean to be a model portfolio strategist? What is it? Yeah, it, it's meant a lot of things over the years, and I think it's grown in popularity in terms of the term. But to me, it's how most, call it RAAs or independent financial advisors, operate the investment portfolios for their clients. And this means... You know, internally, whether they're trading it or using a third-party platform, they set a series of model portfolios that align with their clientele, their risk tolerance, and their, you know, unique attributes that, such as wanting ESG, tax efficient, et cetera. So many advisors have built their own. You know, they hire their own internal staff. They, you know, just do it themselves if they're a really small shop, and they'll do the research on the funds they want to use, and they'll build a model. There's third-party strategists out there that you can get access to. You go directly to them, they'll give you a model. And then there's the fund manufacturers. So they've really gotten into this game over the past handful of years where rather than just selling their individual product lineup, they build a model portfolio 
around that product lineup. And I think it's that evolution that's really important because I think the wholesalers at Asset Manager started to realize that the access point for most financial advisors is a model. It's not necessarily the fund itself. And that's where I think that's become such a large part of, say, BlackRock's business, is we'll give away the IP of the model because they're investing in, in our underlying fund, and that's where we get paid. Okay. Um, and so you, you use the, the acronym TAMP. Maybe you can define that and then say how you think the evolution has worked, because you're talking about an evolution, right, from the mm-hmm. TAMP to what you're describing now on the model side. Yeah, so TAMP, turnkey asset management platform. Um, there's many providers out there, the Orions, the GeoWealth, the SmartX, and loosely, it's a one-stop solution for financial advisors to get access to, say, CRM technology, billing, reporting, proposals. And, you know, depending on the platform, it can be a little bit of, you know, cobble it together or it can be a silver bullet, you know, one size solution. Um, a big component of a lot of these and how they make a lot of their money is in access to investments or access to investment managers. So whereas many people use a TAMP, that advisor I spoke about may use a TAMP to do their own execution of their own strategies, their own trading, many look to what's called a model manager lineup. So this could be a series of third-party model strategists that provide their models or their stock portfolio to the TAMP to execute on their behalf. And it's a cool concept. If I'm an advisor, I can get access to some of the best strategists available in the world. Um, I can allocate 10% to you know, XYZ manager, 20% to another manager and build together, you know, build my own custom model of various models that are provided on this TAMP platform. Okay. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me too. And so, you know, I used to think of the turnkey asset management platform as one where, you know, the advisor doesn't really spend as much time on creating the model or trying to think about asset allocation advice. They're giving that as the investment platform, they're outsourcing some of that. Mm-hmm. And then they're providing the other services that go along with advisory, like whether it's tax planning, estate planning, you know, setting goals and, and really helping people achieve the process. So I always thought this is more of a, you know, um, uh, an, an advisor that really wants to do focus on the other parts of the business and kind of outsource some of that investment side. So, um, that's rightly or wrongly, but now let's blend this all back together, right? You've now started your own shop, Modelist. What differentiates or what is your goal of differentiating modelists from the things we described today? Yeah, you just brought up a great point that most advisors that that are good and they want to grow, they don't do a lot of investment management work. It's a core part of what they offer, but it's rarely their core competency. So there's benefit to outsourcing. You remove your brand a little bit. You say, hey, I'm more of a quarterback in terms of your investment portfolio, and I'm outsourcing it to these various investment managers, you probably recognize the name. They're a bunch of smart people. In order to do that, though, you lose a lot of things. You give up branding of your organization, you give up control, and you pay typically a much higher fee to get access to an aggregate of third-party investment managers. What I'm trying to do at Modelist is take the benefits of that third-party outsourcing, but put it into the advisor's control under their brand. So we've built a series of underlying investment methods. And this is what a lot of third-party strategists are doing, whether it's trend following, momentum, relative strength, you know, duration management, credit management, just a lot of techniques that are often done within a you know, fund-based portfolio. Doing the research, giving away that IP to investment advisors, letting them, with our help, construct their own model portfolio. And the benefits are now they get to retain the name brand. They get to have control. They get the customization. And we're just doing a kind of all the intellectual dirty work and then the execution of the strategies. So we can trim off a lot of fat in terms of fees. And we give that advisor really a selling point to their practice and to their clients that they've built something custom for their clientele. They're not outsourcing it. So 
in addition to, to offering uh, you know, some portfolio solutions from the model side, in terms of creating or coming up with theses, you know, in terms of uh, how an advisor might want to be positioned for the coming environment, is there, is there something that you offer through models in terms of research or other resources within that, that standpoint? 100%. And, and we call everything we do evidence-based investing. So it's really this notion that you think of a concept, you test the theory, you prove it, and then you execute it like a robot over and over and over again. So you mentioned, you know, topics right now that people are concerned about, you know, we're probably on the latter legs of this, but like inflation, we have a method for how to invest with inflation expectations. For example, you look at the Philly Fed 12 month inflation expectation, and if it's above long-term average, we'll consider us in a inflationary environment. If it's below, we'll consider us not in an inflationary environment. Very simple concept. And when you're above, you own this basket of, of funds. When you're below, you own this basket of funds, you know, tips, commodities, utilities, energy, and then, you know, IT, uh, emerging markets, et cetera. And when you test this, it's like, well, this thesis kind of plays out. And this is a lot of what we would do just as being like in an investment committee at an RIA. It's like, what are we looking at right now? Where do we want to be invested? But if I was really shooting from the hip, we think if we can digest that concept into a proven back-tested way of looking at that concept and introduce it to a model, you can build that theme within that model for the advisor. So it's not about necessarily, you know, trying to jump between these themes, but you can build a combination of some long-term factor-based type concepts within your model, but then we can introduce things for you know, a select period of time that may be more um, applicable to the current environment. So, and then from so there, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to follow up with that. And, and, and from there, in terms of the actual investable universe, once you, you know, you come up with a model portfolio, you might think about various asset classes and, and weightings and allocations to that. But within that ecosystem, what role do asset managers play, um, you know, and thinking about it from an active versus passive? you know, side, or even from traditional assets versus alternative assets, private versus public, uh, uh, you know, credit and equity, you know, and, and even vehicle type, you know, mutual funds, ETFs, or other uh, other vehicles within that sphere? Great question. Not a lot on the private side. We're focusing mostly on tradable securities. A portfolio can look as simple as four tickers, call it a U.S. and international uh, uh bond and a commodity fund, or it can be as complex as 25 tickers. We can get sectors and countries and things included in the model. So it tends to lean towards low-cost ETFs. If you think about this whole narrative of giving your client a really powerful model at really low cost, we can gain exposure if we're doing a lot of the value proposition within the model design. But that being said, we do use active managers and asset classes where there's just not any available efficiency to trade in it. Like for example, large cap blend, rarely will you ever see me promote an active manager. You know, maybe something with like a buffered exposure or some sort of derivative exposure. Um, but in the core bond space, yeah, we, we do see a lot of active managers. The cost is low, especially when weighted in a larger portfolio, it's not that expensive. So we can range from purely passive to incredibly active. Most folks, I think, are somewhere in between, and we'll do a lot of the fund picking and the fund research and have recommendations for advisors, but they're able to actually use their own fund selections within that asset class if they so choose. So as you think through it and you think about your models, too, do you uh, think of this as kind of there? You mentioned the four ticker example. I'll call it the, the, the simple execution model. You have the more elaboration. Uh, or more elaborate uh, versions. But as you kind of build this together too, do you think of it uh, as like a hub and spoke kind of approach? And what I mean is that, or like a core satellite is a phrase that people use where you have these kind of anchor allocations and then, you know, maybe put some thematic models around that as well. Like you, you get the illustration of like inflation. Um, you may want to, someone may want to be betting on, 
you know, recessionary environment, which has a certain type of model. So how, how do you kind of envision people doing that? I know you want to be everything to everyone, right? But mm-hmm. kind of what is like that, that kind of core recommendation, how you would uh, give that kind of initial advice to your, to your potential clients? Candidly, that's probably the most difficult part of what we're doing, where you have this library of really cool techniques. And at first, you know, conversation, many advisors are, well, I need to do it all. Well, you know, I can't because that's just overwhelming and you, you end up with so many different allocations or you just pick for me. So we do a front end process. We have a questionnaire to try to understand what's important to that advisor. This is what I've learned, you know, in my past handful of years, 90% of advisors would come to us at a research firm and go, you pick, you're the experts. The more you got to know them, it was the opposite. 90% had a bias, had an opinion. And it could be as something as little as like, I've always promoted dividend yield to my clients before, and I don't want to lose that story. Okay, let's maintain that. Or I'm okay with massive tracking error as long as I can explain it. The other opposite's mostly true, though. I don't, I'm not okay with tracking error. I, I look at a back test. I love the excess return, but I'm not okay with that experience. So to answer your question, we profile and spend time with the advisor via a questionnaire to try to understand what is important to them. How many different models do you want to operate? What different versions? You know, a California advisor may want a lot of ESG, where someone in the South, I find, want more biblical portfolios. Maybe that's way overgeneralizing and stereotyping, but... Um, that's the type of advisor we see. They're all different. So it's hard to say this is the, the starting point of what we have to offer, and then we can tweak it. We're trying to build upon a story with them. But that one story is rooted in evidence-based investing, because it's kind of like the, the core of everything we do in terms of our research reports, our content, our collateral is all built upon you know robotic-type investing based upon what the data says, and taking emotion completely out of the equation. Well, you, you mentioned the California-based investor having a bias to potentially to ESG. Uh, I'm introduce you to Sam Lau, who during you know the pandemic was trying to figure out how to store the negative price of crude oil in his swimming pool. So I, I don't know if that was very ESG friendly yeah, at I the time. Must have offended. Uh, but, I apologize. <laughs> but uh, but Sam was definitely looking to capitalize on a. Uh, a negative, uh, negative dollar price on crude oil here in the U.S. So, um, and then I just, I, I totally remember when you see it quoted, that's, those are for 42 gallons, you know, of, of oil at a time. So, um, I don't think it's as profitable as you think on each of those futures contracts, but needless to say, there, there's always a market for everyone. Um, just so just real quick on that kind of same concept too, as you're, as you're thinking through this and, you know, you're you're talking to people. You say that a lot come in with their inherent biases. So, is are you thinking as like the first way of people using your firm model list is for some of those ancillary things, right? Like, you know, hey, there's some hole in your portfolio. That, okay, so given your your framework, you might like dividend based investing, but here's what we see things that go well with that. So, is that kind of part of how? You're thinking about trying to, I always think of portfolio management as like plugging holes in the portfolio and trying to find out where those air pockets are, right? So is that how you're thinking about it? Or are you looking for people who, you know, are kind of starting from scratch and just say, Hey, I want to be an advisor, but I don't want the burden, burden of asset allocation. So it, it's more the latter. It's really trying to build a holistic solution across their business forum. What types of models do they need? Where can we meet you with what you've been doing? Um, I think the former you described, I, I see potential there, but not quite as much. And that might be, you know, hey, we've got our core portfolios. We're happy with them. We're simple. You know, we don't want to pay anybody to give me an asset allocation model, but you got some cool stuff there. Can you give it to us that we can sleeve and maybe make a satellite, you know, component of our model? Sure, we'll have those conversations. But I think to get the most benefit, it's really the whole model portfolio solution and getting an advisor to say, you know, let me outsource this to you guys. I don't have this expertise. If you're going to do the work for some of my clients, you should do it for all of them. And, you know, we'll absorb your content, your way of thinking about the world, the kind of proactive communication on what models are doing and, you know, regurgitate that to our clients. 
Okay, I heard another phrase too that that Sam and I have, have run across for many years, and you use the phrase evidence-based investing. And so, could you maybe walk through walk us through what that means? And I hear that I think of back testing. You know, again, you use that phrase as well. Um, you know, there's been criticism of some managers that they've never seen a T stat they don't like, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that if it, if it works in the data. Uh, but in general, what is evidence-based investing from from your perspective? It's a fair critique. I mean, it could be window dressing for backtesting. I, I mean, I think there is importance to backtesting a concept if you use it the right way. And, I mean, if you think of an idea like, you know, economic growth, like look at a leading economic indicator mm-hmm. and go, you know, Let's look at this data and let's understand if it's accelerating or decelerating. And do we want to add more risk to a portfolio or decrease risk to a portfolio? And we, you know, you run a back test, it looks great. You know, you can do a lot of these things and you like avoid certain periods of time, but that's a dangerous expectation, I think, to set. It's more about what's the behavior of this concept in different periods and can you help frame some, you know, goals for a model based upon what it's done. So I, I think. The evidence-based investing concept, I think, is a good sales tactic, candidly, from our position and then even more so from an advisor to their client, is showing that there is some process to what they've done. They're showing that it's not emotional, that they're going to follow these rules. They're going to modify the rules as needed. All of these you know, bullet points that go along with evidence-based investing. So there's that component to it, but I think it's better than doing the latter. And that is just, you know, counting on someone's reputation or their opinion to make decisions for your model. I think actually showing somebody the evidence to why you made a decision that you made. And if you're wrong or right, at least you made it for a reason instead of, you know, an uneducated guess. Yeah, I mean, that that's always the postmortem we have with the portfolio management staff here at DoubleLine is that, okay, what'd you get right? What'd you get wrong? But, you know, you know, one of the early things that learning to occur is write stuff down, like why you made a decision, why did you do this trade? And I think that postmortem can be helpful. And sometimes you can codify it in a set of rules, right? This is what I was trying to achieve. And then it always reminds me of um, Sam when we hired one of our analysts on our team and, you know, was teaching them kind of the, the rules of the rules of the road. And they were doing some back testing. He's like, I found this perfect model. If you, you know, buy equities every time the VIX spikes above 50, you know, you make money and he just wasn't looking at the time series. It's like, yeah, that was like in 2008 and nine. Right. And so there was this, you know, it was, it was taking the idea and codifying it. But prior to that, the VIX had never been above 50. Right. Yeah. So that yeah. rule would have never been triggered, you know, in your own mind. So um, I think it is important. And you, you know, you said taking the emotions out of it, which is very important because, you know, back tests are great, but you have to live through them and your clients mm-hmm. have to. So, how do you kind of help bring that emotion out of it? Um, you know, that's one thing you're talking about here. How, how do you get people to stay tried and true to staying on the path? I, I think it's not as easy on the front end. Like, I love the, the analogy you described. And, you know, I've seen so many models built that have these two, three event periods that make their whole return. And you tell somebody, like, do you, do you trust a baseball player that's three for three? or one that's hit, you know, 45,000 hits and 90,000 at-bats. You know, the data's worse on the second guy, but I, I would take that baseball player. So you want to have this kind of repetitive multiple time periods tested across various countries if you can. So, you know, trying to take that emotion out of that decision-making process is is very important. I think um, I'm blanking on the first part of your question there, but... I'll come back to it. Just reminding me of a of a paper I also had said analyst read was was using the uh, the James Stein estimator, um, which again now we're getting pretty wonky. But what it does is it it doesn't just take the outliers in it. It it, it combines the averages of everyone. So it was mm-hmm. a way of looking at baseball players too, and like you, know, you have your Ted Williams, they hit 400 and the likes too. But is that repeatable and predictable? And it's a better way of kind of allocating across resources and things. So. For our, our, our quant friends out there, which I think they're few and far, far between, look up the Jane Stein estimator and applying it to baseball. But back to the question, Joe, yeah. um, it, it's just taking the emotion out of it. How does yeah. one do so 
Um, and you know, in a, you know, cause again, you're evidence based. So how do you get rid of that emotional feeling that we all get, get from investing? Yeah. It, now it, it, I remember the question, but <laughs> I think it's more difficult on the front end because I've seen so many people take this concept and I think be a little reckless with it. And that is build a strategy, great back test. They sell the hell out of it, but then it ultimately disappoints because the expectations are set so high. That's where I think what we're doing, we're not trying to blow people out of the water with, with returns. It's more. You, know, you say that real quick. I want to cut you off because um, someone taught me early in my career too, if you have a process and again, it's come to be a lot of simulation, but if you have a process that generates, I don't know, call it a 4% return, right? And it has set amount of volatility around it. Well, and you, you say it has a 4% return. You know, it has a 4% return, but during certain periods, you'll get six. Some periods will get my, you know, go get two, it'll average a four, you know, and all that stuff. If you're marketing and selling a strategy and you look at the long-term performance, you put a trend line around it. What you'll find is that people buy it when it's had the above average for that process and they'll sell it below average, even though they intrinsically know that process. Mm-hmm. And so there, there is this emotional component. And I, I've applied that to you to kind of quantitative modeling at times to think about, okay, where are we in a cycle of, of these ideas? And so this is where that naive extrapolation gets you in trouble. But I just thought that's a, a very good point to, to talk about there too inside of that. Yeah. Well, same thing. When I was at that camp, you have a lot of managers. I'm not going to name names, but you know, had a fantastic 2008. Money just flowed into those strategies and they ultimately disappointed. You know, some of them in one quarter underperformed by 20%. And if you would have experienced the whole thing, you'd take it. Right. Exactly like you said, they're buying in at the wrong time. So you're, you're kind of chasing the hot strategy. We see it in the TAMP world. We see it in the mutual fund world. We see it everywhere. So that's my goal now and kind of what I was saying is not sell the stuff that's worked, sell the process, sell the experience, sell the relationship, and sell the platform is what I'm trying to do. And that is you know, not just find two or three things that are working right now but try to find things that are pretty durable in various market environments, dig at advisors, have them understand and avoid or trying to keep them from making that mistake. You know, not only have the model be unemotional, but the advisor themselves be unemotional and remind them what they want in their portfolios and continue to show them if they're doing what they expected them to do and kind of keep them on the rails. So I think those are great examples and, and perfect to kind of, what we're trying to do. And it's built a little bit on my historical frustration on working with advisors through my last roles. And, you know, if we can get them to live in the reality and truth and understand that, you know, active management's difficult and say these things and not just put ourselves out there as building the next best mousetrap, I think it creates a better relationship. Well, I know your quantitative background. So we had to drop some James Stein estimators when you're talking about shrinking your variance estimators. So, you know, I mean, we got we to do it every once in a while. Because I know Sam Sam loves it when I nerd out like that. Yeah, I'd be lying if I knew what you were talking about. But okay, well, you'll Google it and you'll see it's very simple. I made it sound way more complex than it is. That's what I'm good at as well. Yeah, I, I smile and nod when those things yeah. happen. <laughs> uh, Joe, let's uh, let's wind it down, I guess, with uh, with some market thoughts right here. And you know, just want to pick your brain on you know, your current thinking about um, you know where we stand. You know, we're winding down the third quarter of 2023 here. S&P 500 is kind of like in the, the high teens type of year-to-date return. The ag is, you know, it's, I think it's still positive through today, but just, just hanging on there to a, a slightly positive number. And then when I look at the commodity market, it's it's uh, it's got a negative print in front. So just, you know, across these asset classes, you know, just how are you thinking about them? What's your outlook? How do you think uh, clients should just be, you know, investors should just be positioned as a whole moving forward in some of this uh, uncertain world that we're at? And then we've got a FOMC meeting coming up uh, with that FOMC meeting. It's a, it's a quarterly one. So we're going to have the, the summary of economic projections, which should give some insight about, you know, what the Fed's thinking about. Um, you know, we've got a fairly strong labor market, although we're seeing some deterioration in some of the metrics there. Inflation, you know, it's still the, you know, the problem for, for at least what Jay Powell most recently signaled, you know, just want to, the process has got to go on a little bit longer is what he said, I think, in terms of monetary policy. So just wanted to pick your brain, see what you're thinking and, 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 you know, some of your thoughts around that. I think we've been treading water 
in this story for quite some time. You know, I think, you know, I look at the forward Fed interest rate projections. It's pretty flat. You know, maybe half a percent or half a point is projected in the next meet. And that's not real. Like, I, I don't I don't see a full point in the data coming out, but that's been wrong. Like that, that story has been wrong for most of this year. And, you know, valuations are pretty extended. The yield curve is still severely inverted. You know, this recession that's looming has still yet to come. I feel like, I feel the same now really that I did at the start of the year, but the markets continue to churn up as we've done it. So, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty steady as you go. I think forward valuation of the S&P is about like 18, which is 18 and change, which is about historically average, if not a little bit more. I think, you know, the Fed's done a good job of putting itself in a position where if data does start to get pretty gnarly, they can reverse course. And I think that's what's kind of priced in and embedded right now is the fact that people are expecting economic weakness. They're in turn are expecting the Fed to react and, you know, loosen monetary policy. And that's really given us a good buffer. I think to the downside. So rather than just go sideways, we've actually churned up a little bit more so in the tech. So me, from a quant perspective, I I think if this were to continue to hold true, I'd like a little bit of a mean reversion right now, and that is value really catching up, maybe providing that you know leadership here between now and the end of the year relative to growth. I think growth could use a little bit of a reset. We've had you know, seven companies in the S and P drive most of the return so far this year. So I think that's really concentrated on the on the growth, primarily tech side. Fixed income tend to be short duration still, just from an academic perspective of I'm getting a greater yield with lesser expected volatility than on the longer end of the curve. Um, I'm not as insulated if you know rates do fall, and I, I kind of get that extended upside. But I like that kind of conservative approach. Take that four and a half, five percent on the fixed income side of the book. Go value. This trade's been incredibly long year to date. And I think a lot of quant based models that are looking at a bad economic situation and are looking at, you know, the valuation discrepancies between these asset classes have been completely wrong. So that's where I like to look at them even harder and understand if this is that period of time where there could be winners within those trades. So where is the bad economic data? It's something we always debate, you know, we, we talk about yield curves, LEI, stuff like but where is the bad economic data today? It's not many places. I, I think a lot of sentiment and it's a yeah. lot of, you know, it's projections. A, a cool chart we put together was looking at the conference board leading economic indicators versus the coincident which yep. is that concept, right? So it's like eight leading economic indicators versus four that are happening right now. And there's been a massive divergence. It's been positive on the coincident indicators and negative on the leading. So I think there's just this expectation of bad that's supposed to be happening, yet the data continues to be good. So, I mean, I, I know it's a massive overgeneralization, but it hasn't hit the consumer. It hasn't hit employment and hasn't hit a lot of these things that get really nasty around recessionary environments. And that's where I think the story of a recession right now, I don't really care if it's true because I don't know how they're going to define it. And if they do define it, what does it really look like for the market? I think the bad component of any near-term recession happened in 2022, that that's where we saw the volatility. That's where we saw rate spike. That's where we saw, you know, equity markets fall. And if we hit a recession right now, I don't know if it's a bad thing for equities. I just don't. And you go through the recessions prior to the past three that we've had, 2008, tech bubble, from start to finish of recession has been, I think the three prior to that have been positive for equity markets. So it's just not in near-term memory, but it's not unprecedented to have this market right now where we can get deteriorating economic data, even though it's not bad. But if it does get bad, like many people are expecting it through, through sentiment, it might not be that bad for assets. Yeah. I think it all comes down to the Fed's reaction function because I think, as you mentioned, there is this belief that, it, I'll use your quote, if the data get gnarly, you know, the Fed can react, right? 
mm-hmm. and they can cut. And I think there's some of that is, is baked in there. And I think, I think that I, I believe in that. Um, my only concern is that what happens if that happens, the data get gnarly whilst, as Lau likes to say, we have inflation, right? Mm-hmm. And do, do, does the Fed still have that fortitude to cut? And so, again, I'm not saying those things work together, um, but I do find it very interesting that we went through a period for the last few weeks where when we got bad news, it was good news for markets, right? Mm-hmm. And those always kind of scratch your head a little bit, but... I think what you said was very important there because it was sentiment and sentiment's been negative and it outperformed sentiment. And so all of a sudden you get kind of the FOMO trade, right? It's the something happens and, and it, it, it swings in the opposite of what you think. And so I, I still think that, you know, with the Fed needing to stay tight, they will stay t- tight. I don't buy into the forward curve estimate. Um, I'll clear the air here on the, on the podcast. I did not say that the Fed is cutting 100 basis points because the recession's imminent. I said I could see potentially if we have a recession, the first cut from the, the first cut from the Fed is not 25. It's 50 or 75. It could be as much as 100. And, um, they got blown out of the water and everybody called us and said, why are you so crazy? Um, but, you know, crazy is a good thing, I guess, at times too. But where I'm going with all this. When's that point when they declare it a recession? When does the flag drop? You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's and, you know, look, the uh, NBR who who declares the, the recessions declared we had a recession in March of 2020 and it ended in April of 2020, by the way. Mm-hmm. And they told us that what was it, like July of 21 now, something like that. It was definitely the summer. Right. Yeah. You know? leg. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a lag. But also, you know, I think this is the thing, too. Just because we didn't see anything negative happen doesn't mean it won't happen. And that that sounds very obvious. But what I mean by that is that there's just been so much of this policy that hasn't trickled to the economy yet. It mm-hmm. hasn't reset the housing market. It hasn't reset a lot of corporate America. It, ha- You know, banks still aren't paying market rates. Janet gives you a higher rate than you can get at the bank. Right. And so. The transmission mechanism, it's not broken. It's just trying to operate the lag because banks are trying to save face. They mm-hmm. want positive carry. They can't lend you money. They can't uh, give you deposits and, and give you interest at five and a half percent and make loans at four. It's just not profitable, right? And so, um, you know, I think time is the enemy of this thesis. But right now, like we, we've been in kind of this Goldilocks world and being in Goldilocks, enjoy it. That's why stocks have went up, right? That's why credit has done well. And, you know, that's what we try to profess to our teams, too. You don't have to have every trade right. You got to have it right in aggregate. Right. And that's why we need disparate views to go through this. So, um, you know, you mentioned like the simple model today, Um, the simple model being domestic, international. You said bonds and commodities. Right. What does that look like today? And kind of your tactical asset allocation model, if you're just kind of allocating capital, thinking about valuation, thinking about risk management. How, how do you allocate across those four things? Because Sam said he wanted to reallocate his portfolio today, so we're trying to get him some free asset allocation advice. <laughs> you know, it, it's tough to answer that because, you know, I go back to that. I don't want to make that call. You know, I, I have a way of looking at that mix right now that would be, you know, relative strength related okay. and would position me. In continue to position me in U.S. equities over international, over bonds, and over commodities. Yeah, really kind of like taking that flow, and that's kind of completely counterintuitive to what I said before. But that's that's what that piece of data is telling me. But I can switch on that, right? I can look at that signal and make a, a change, you know, weekly if we need yeah. to. Um, that being said, I, I think we're back to what was damaged in 2022. And that is a good diversified portfolio makes a lot of sense where, you know, mid duration fixed income, some equities, maybe keeping that international, you know, more in line with global market cap, like at a 40%, 45% weight um, is from a forward looking perspective, more valuable than it was two years ago. Yeah. And when you weren't getting anything on fixed income, that was a really tough thing to do. So that's where you look back at like the you know Bridgewater all weather asset mix of you know projecting for inflation and growth expectations to do well or disappoint and kind of hold that core portfolio. I think it's a, an attractive portfolio again, especially the fixed income side of it. 
You're speaking to our hearts, dear, dear to our hearts there, Joe. So, um, with that, let's, let's not uh, have you start bad mouthing bonds and let's, uh, let's end on the high note for Sam. And, uh, hopefully you took heed on that asset allocation advice. And before we let you go though, what we have to do is introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. So Sam. All right. All right, Joe. My favorite part of the show is often the uh, hated part of the show for the guests. So it's Sherman says. where I will offer a series of alternating prompts between Sherman and yourself, Sherman and you, and uh, to listen to the top of my response there. So I'm going to kick it off to Sherman first to provide an example. Sherman, you got student loan payments. Yeah, I was going to say, Sam, when he looked at that, he knows the reflexive uh, uh, parts really caused me consternation here and people abuse them. And so... The yourself, myself is overutilized and, and actually used inappropriately most of the time. That said, student loan payments, have fun. They're back. They're in vogue. Pay Uncle Sam back. You owe him money for the last 40 months. Yeah, I think as I heard you say earlier today, too, summer vacation's over. School's back in session. So I guess the <laughs> debt repayments are as well. So uh, do I get I that I did say that, and I said that also means we, now we got to pay the bills, too, and that includes Uncle Sam here, too. By the way, we are hypocrites because in California, we haven't made our federal tax payments for the year yet, for last year or for the quarters because of the flood relief we got from January when we had our storms. So uh, for all those people worried about Cal uh, about federal tax receipts being diminished meaningfully, don't worry. October 15th, uh, some people will be helping stuff those coffers. So Yeah, it'll be a deluge of pain. All right. Over to you, Joe, with uh, reinvestment risk. Oh, it's important again. It wasn't for the longest time, but I think that concept of why not just own something that gives you 5% risk-free versus taking duration risk and owning something that has 4% with duration risk, why would you do it? I think that's my number one answer. You ain't going to get that five once it, once it rolls off and you got to reinvest it. So inverted yield curve and higher level of rates bring that topic back into the conversation. I think, I would, I think anyone that I, finished college in the past 10 years doesn't even really know about that term. I would say it's one of the most underappreciated risks um, and dear to a, a bond manager's heart just in general. And that's the yield to maturity assumption and things is that reinvestment. So a very underappreciated risk. But for those that have played the game, I say I'm okay with you playing it for a few more months because I don't think the Fed does anything. But Guess what? The market's going to get ahead of you in terms of timing. So you got to be smarter than we are to be able to, to get that timing right. But I, I, I appreciate that concept, Joe. Mm -hmm. But right. said that to a lot of people. If you took the drawdown in 2022 yeah. and you're going to sit in cash on the way up, you're not going to be happy. Yeah. And, you know, bonds are very mechanic, not like stocks. And that's going to be um, that's entirely a possibility. And I think a lot of people could get burned by where they're positioned right now. All right. Sherman, uh, over to you with uh, crude oil. We were talking about my swing pool before. What's your thought on uh, crude oil? Well, it's been about a $150 swing since you tried to fill your swimming pool up, right? From the, the negative price, I guess, 140 or so. I, I don't know. Crude oil seems a bit rich today to, to where I'm thinking right now, just given Again, uh, thinking about the construct of the demand situation, seeing all the headlines the, uh, coming out of China, just the fact that the reopening story didn't play out there, uh, driving season's over, we've got to pay the bills again. Uh, you've heard me lamenting all week about petrol prices, Sam, continuing to go up. Um, I didn't tell everyone. I didn't buy gas all week. I watched it go up. And it went down 10 cents this morning and I went in and swooped in and got it. So I felt like I was a value investor, Joe, uh, versus the growth investor there, albeit it was higher than where it started the week. But you can't see how there's a 10, 10 cent swing down in one day. So maybe they were uh, a little too usury. So. All right. Back to you, Joe, with investor sentiment. Oh, not that valuable anymore. And we've seen it where. Coming from my seat as using as an indicator, we have investor sentiment. We also have news sentiment. And we also have just, you know, consumer sentiment. And I've tested all of those. 
really great indicator up till 2020. Horrific in 2020. When people feel horrible and the market rallies because of stimulus, that is a perfect storm for relying on investor sentiment. So I think like many things of 2020, we're nearing the end of the ripple effect of how it was so nasty that we might be settling back to a point where it's important again. But when you go to this extreme difference of markets disassociated with sentiment, it's going to take time for that to really figure itself out. So I was going to say, whatever happened to the meme stock craze, you know, too, and everything too, it played out a lot longer than most of us thought. But um, I was also kind of pausing the idea uh, on the desk that maybe the meme stock craze went away because now they charge for Twitter. And I know that we just we all just stopped using it because I don't I don't see the value of nine bucks to have people just yell at me all day long. Um, I get that for free at work. So, so, much, so many things happened in that year period, though, where I don't know if I just blacked out for a year, but you just you start to remember these things like, you know, supply chains and not being able to get any. I remember buying furniture, not getting it for months. And it's just like so much crazy stuff happened in that period that you forget some of these major events that just kind of are less important than. Yeah. I, I had a washing machine error LE and could not figure it out. I was trying to restart it and everything said, well, maybe I'll get another one. I wonder how long it'll take. It's like a month or two. I can have it in three days delivered, installed and everything. And so I definitely hit the bid on that. So um, I think, I think it has the, the world has uh, kind of reverted back to uh, what will we recall it being po- pr- uh, prior to 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess we just all uh, realized we took a lot of stuff for granted you know, prior to that period. So, oh, I know. Definitely. So, uh, Sherman, let's see. Where are we at here? Um, let's go with Chinese economy. Or broaden it out. Let's go China. There's so many things going yeah, on. Yeah. I mean, it's a big country. Um, the economy, I have no idea what's going on there. Um, any data that seems to be negative gets discontinued its time series. That's been the trend as of late. Um, I think we're going to, we're going to test this new thesis. And I think I, you've heard me say it, Sam, where, you know, the, the old saying was when the U.S. sneezes, the world catches a cold. And I've always asked the question in this last cycle of China's growth, what happens if China sneezes? Will the world catch the cold? And, so far, we've been immune, and that's not a COVID joke, Sam, or anything in there. But, like, the thing is, is that I think we've been immune this far, and that's every, every like, punditry has been so absolutely wrong this year, right? And all these trades are, are what, what was going to play out. And so I think the question becomes, maybe the Chinese slowdown coincides with the U.S. slowdown, and we don't get to fully test that thesis, right, because we have the, the composition error. But I do think that as you as you think through it, I just see, I don't see how it's easy for the world to really thrive if the Chinese have a recession. And so, um, again, just, it feels like maybe we get the perfect storm together on this, but they've got a big overhang. To me, it feels like their property sector looks like kind of like the Japanese property bubbles from the eighties and the like overbuilt, un, not, not utilized valuations insane. And so uh, I just don't know how to get a good read on it. So. Um, long way to say that we're not invested in China. Um, I'm happy to, to abstain at this point. I know we'll get some flack for that in the feedback, but in general, just to me, coming back to Joe's evidence-based world, just the data is not reliable or analyzable to me at this stage. But I, I think, you know, the whole trend of nationalization and just, you know, exports decreasing, imports decreasing, there are you know, globally, a huge buyer of goods and they're a source of cheap goods. And if both of those things are breaking down, which the data suggests, I don't think it's good for the global economy. They don't care. And today, what was it this morning? They said, what, Chinese officials can no longer have iPhones on property? Yeah, Yeah. government officials. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So China represents what I think 20% of Apple's total sales, the number two country behind the U.S. And if that is you know, a hint of something larger in terms of what they want to shut down as far as U.S. good usage. It could be pretty bad. And that's the reason it's taken out a quarter of a trillion dollars of market cap out of Apple this week, too, right? <laughs> so it, it's it's had, it's had its impact on, on the market cap, too. So, no, I, I, I agree, with, agree with that, too. Joe, here's a question I wanted to ask in the in the regular segment, but I forgot. Uh, 
and you brought it up. The reason I wanted to, to ask this because you brought it up in the beginning. Uh, AI as an investment tool. Um, I can speak to how we're using it heavily. Um, a comment I often get is, you know, Joe, if you guys are trying to build custom investment models for hundreds of advisors, are you going to end up with tens of thousands of different iterative models? The answer is hopefully yes. So how can we leverage AI to draft trade rationale or commentary for each of these specific models? And what we can do, we can train it to what the recipe or what the, the ingredients are of the model. It can figure out the math at a high rate to spit out the other end. Same thing on a front end commentary of, you know, what does this model do? Well, I know it has A, B, C, and D. Therefore, here's the narrative with your title on it. So that's how we're leveraging a lot just for internal processes. You know, it does a lot of what analyst work used to be. Um, but as far as an investment vehicle, I, I think people are doing, there's so much going on, like overanalyzing things with machine learning and AI to find stock picks and launching funds based upon AI you know, stock picks and data, like that's so above and beyond anything I can grasp. And I don't know if it'll work, um, but I, I think the, you're not going to see the end of it. I, I just think the next few years, AI is going to be a topic of conversation and all of its uses. Hmm. All right. You're on the, you're in the vanguard in terms of the usage here for an investment advisory business. Uh, let's see here. Sherman services economy. Crushing it. Look at that number that we got out of the isms this week, right? I mean, look, it, it's always, it's also August. It's, uh, the last, last hurrah, the last party. But man, services is a resilience. This, this portends well for what's been going on from the consumer, from just experiences. You know, the, I think a lot of it is just the jobs remaining relatively stable and wage growth being there. And so. Uh, people are out there spending money, and that's what makes the economy go around. And so this idea of a recession, we have to see services slow uh, in order to do so. And everything about that report was extremely positive, at least backward-looking for the month of August. It was very positive. Didn't even see much commentary from the perma bearers out you know, after that report. You know, I mean, maybe the, services prices paid, you know, because, again, um, you know, it was yeah, up a little bit. I mean, that, that's where you can start to, hey, it's going to have some – but, look, this is – you know, we did a we did a, uh internal podcast or a Channel 11 show. It's once one of our portfolio managers. And we just call it the haters ball as a homage to Dave Chappelle and, you know, what they had done there. And, I mean, it was just like – Man, the haters are just loving life, man, because that's what's happened on everything. It's been the opposite of everything. So, um, but again, um, I think you should expect that at this point, you know, during the summer months and, um, we'll, we'll see when we come back and, um, you know, uh, again, there's more burdensome payments and the like, but I don't expect this economy to fall off a cliff. I think, you know, we're going to slow and then we're going to see and when the rubber meets the road as we get deeper into the fourth quarter. All right. Um, commercial real estate, Joe. Oh, uh, I would say I'm still pretty bearish over it. And here I sit in an office building just outside of downtown Minneapolis, which has really yet to recover. Um, you still see a ton of vacancy in the downtown area. Um, I'm kind of in the, you know, up and coming cousin neighborhood of downtown Minneapolis, and it's pretty thriving here. You know, it was tough to get office space. So now come I'm to not... downtown Los Angeles. You'll see some vacancy. You can set up shop here. Mm -hmm. I know Brookfield will lease you some property pretty cheap these days. Mm -hmm. I think I'll come back. Like, I mean, it, it's not my forte, but I just, it, it always it seems to come back. And you look at places like New York and what I'm hearing there is, you know, it, it's getting back, especially uh, the prices for office space and, you know, apartments and all those things recovered pretty quickly that I think some smaller cities like Minneapolis will, will take more time, but it will come back. I'm not bullish on the asset class because I still think it's going to be tough. You know, we've evolved to a more um, work from home environment and I, it's going to take time to, to really revert that, but it'll happen. Yeah. We'll and, the, and you uh, can't cast a wide net, you know, I mean, there's so much idiosyncrasies about it. Sorry, Sam. 
No, I was going to say uh, we'll see how the Minneapolis winters fare. You know, see how work from ho- uh, office and uh, work from home fares when the uh, Minneapolis winters hit and people have to. to, to I'm in five days a week now. Out. I can tell you in February, I'll be lucky if it's one or two. So <laughs> you're not going to be going to the hamster uh, little area, right? Those oh, little yeah, like, the <laughs> skyway system. No. Yeah. All right. I've only been there uh, once, and it was cold. Yeah. So anyway, go ahead, Sam. All right, let's uh, round it out here. Last question for each of you. Uh, Sherman's, yours is Brock Purdy versus Sam Darnold. Man, that's a battle for the ages. Who doesn't want to watch that this weekend, right? You know, um, look, I, I think Darnold, he's a decent quarterback. Um, he just had the the pity of having to play for the Jets, so we know what that does to most people's career. And, um, you know, you're a former Aaron Rodgers guy, so I know you're gloating watching him go to the Jets. and how in that big mainstream media, they're going to eat him alive when he turns into Aaron Rodgers. And his Aaron Rodgers, see, I totally pivoted this too. Um, but the Aaron Rodgers component is that he's great while he's winning. When they start losing or something bad happens, he's going to blow up and that media is going to eat him alive. And he does not thrive well in that situation, just like playing the Niners in playoffs where he's 0-4 in his career. That said, um, I'm a party fan. I still think he's he's he is the number one right now. I'm not mad at Darnold being there. I'm glad we moved on from Trey Lance. To, you know, that's what you learn in, in portfolio management. The first loss is your best loss. Move on. And um, we just signed Bosa. It's going to be tough this week. You know, Steelers, uh, playing Steelers on the road, you know, don't love it. But um, I think the Niners got a good shot this year. So uh, I'll ride the Brock Purdy bandwagon. And uh, Darnold, Darnold looked good in, in training camp. So. Um, I'm, I'm riding party is where I'm going with that. So long went away and had to bring some Jets hate for our fellow colleague, Kimbra. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for, for bringing the uh, Aaron Rodgers hate too. So, yeah. all right, close this out here, Joe. I'm going to give you a uh, golden gophers. Ooh. Oh, you hit me right where my passion is. Wow. I was at the game last week. It was a nail biter. Haven't had a good football program in a long time, but I think we're on the way up. Our basketball team is horrible, but I'm a diehard fan. I'll be at the game when they visit North Carolina. They have a tough schedule. Um, our rivals of Wisconsin and Iowa have pretty easy schedules. We get both Ohio State and Michigan, which in those crossovers is, is tough. I think last year was our window, but I'm still a diehard fan and Overly optimistic whenever I get asked that question. So we're going. Joe, well, we're Sam, going Sam's three. a Badger. You know, Sam's a Badger, so you got to watch out. That's really yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. I, I taught my five year old that that Bucky is yucky, and so. <laughs> I love it. Well, look, this is a great thing about um, you know sports. It, it, they bring us together. They tear us apart but it gives us something to do when we're not thinking about markets. So, Joe, uh, really appreciate the time today. Uh, before we let you go, though, real quick, can you tell our listeners, too, how they can get in touch with you, get more information on Modelist? Give us your 30-second commercial. Yeah, great. If you want to find out more, uh, website's modelist.me, M-E, or hello at modelist.me. Um, you can always get me directly at joe.malin at modelist.me. Um, I'm not super active on Twitter, but I do have an account and I like to tweet things that other people say. So that's worth anything. But yeah, feel free to check it out. If you have interest, let me know. And, you know, excited for the future here. All right. Well, congratulations, Joe. Last time I saw you, you did not have Modelist uh, founded yet. So we're very happy for you. We wish you the best of success out there. If you ever need any help with working on some of those models, I know a couple of guys around here that uh, could, could maybe help you out. So Thanks again. We really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, uh, all of our listeners. We're back after our summer hiatus. Uh, we took August off. Uh, we're going to be grinding through a few of these uh, podcasts for the next couple months. Hopefully you find them as entertaining. And we know that Joe Mallon set the bar very high for our future guests. So thanks again, Joe. Appreciate the time, guys. Thank you. All right. Take care. This material was recorded on the date indicated in the description. 
The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to sell or buy securities in any manner. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. This presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor its affiliates makes any representations or warranties regarding the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this material. Liability, including any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is explicitly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this material. The receipt of this material by any person should not be construed as the provision of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual, nor does it imply that such person becomes a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2023, DoubleLine Capital.